you know, sometimes we call this Sunday Thanksgiving Sunday because, of course, it's the Sunday of the week of Thanksgiving. And um, as Dee Dee said in her prayer, you know, we're uh, probably anticipating, some of you anticipating travel, some anticipating people coming in. And, you know, some are anticipating different kind of Thanksgiving because the, the house isn't what it was. You know, we've had, I've met a couple or three people this morning, families that, you know, have lost their home or, or parts of their home. And so, you know, it's going to be different for a lot, even in our own community. But as far as the liturgical calendar goes, that's the Christian calendar. That's the Christian season of the year. This is the last Sunday of the year. And next Sunday is Advent. And we call this particular Sunday in the Christian calendar Christ the King Sunday. So we end the year, the Christian year, proclaiming Christ the King. And what exactly does that mean anyway? Christ the King. This morning we're going to be reading from one of Paul's letters to the early church. This particular church he was writing to was the church at Colossae. And we call the letter, the letter to the Colossians, right? And it's a short letter, but it's a very important letter. And in this letter, Paul is confronting a thought or a philosophy that was uh, prominent in the first century called Gnosticism. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But it is this threat that Paul sees to the church that causes him to write such a strong statement about who is Christ. Who is Christ to the church? So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Colossians, the first chapter, beginning with the 15th verse. And I'm going to invite us to stand for the reading of God's Word. (coughs) In the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created Through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so that as to present you holy and present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven i paul became a servant of the gospel 
This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me say a, a little word about Gnosticism. Paul was dealing specifically with Gnosticism and the Colossians who heard this uh, writing, this letter from Paul, they knew exactly what Paul was talking about because the Gnostics were coming and confronting them, badgering them perhaps even, about their newfound faith in Christ and what was wrong with that newfound faith. You see, Gnosticism sought to turn Christianity into just another philosophy along the other Greek uh, mythologies and other uh, philosophies of the Roman Empire, uh, not seeing it as a, um, a superior in any way philosophy. In fact, they saw Christianity as a more simplistic philosophy because of its uh, proclamations. So one of the first assumptions that the Gnostics had was that matter was altogether evil. Anything physical was altogether evil. And spirit was altogether good. And that out of evil matter the world was created. Thus the world and all uh, the material in the world was evil. Therefore, God, Christ, couldn't have created the world because God... Christ wouldn't be a part of anything that was evil. The world was put in place uh, by, um, uh, by a mediator in essence, but it certainly wasn't God and it certainly wasn't Christ. And therefore, Jesus was not truly fully human, right? Because how could Jesus, if Jesus were the Son of God, um, uh, be physical? Because physical was evil and God in Christ couldn't be physical. And so, uh, you know, this was the conflict that was going on. He couldn't have had flesh and blood. Jesus was more or less like a phantom. I mean, they didn't doubt that Jesus was on the earth, but he wasn't on the earth in a physical body. It just looked like a physical body. He was more like a, um, a ghost, in essence. And, and, and so this philosophy that, that said God and Christ could never be physical, could only be spiritual, was exactly what Paul was confronting with the church at Colossae. The Gnostics felt they held the key to the mystery about who was God in Christ, this spiritual only being, and Paul begged to differ. A friend of mine named Maxie Dunham, who um, he's in his 80s now, but he was a great preacher and seminary um, uh, president and uh, wrote lots of books, particularly study books. And, and uh, he wrote in one commentary uh, on this particular passage these words about the church. And I want us to hear them this morning. Maxie said, The church is never in a defensive position as long as she remembers who she is, the body of Christ through whom Christ intends to become the head over everything else. Christ himself signs the letter of the church. It is Christ with whom every power in the universe must reckon. And we who make up the church are not operating out of human wisdom and strength alone. We are a new creation, a fellowship 
of resurrection life. The church, we are a letter of Christ. His seal is upon us. Christ signs the letter of the church. This morning, I want to bring up uh, three basic thoughts that Paul is getting over in these few verses in Colossians related to who is Christ, or, or as we say in the old hymn of the church, who is this fairest Lord Jesus in the way that he is dealing with the church and confronting Gnosticism. The, the first thing that is asserted by Paul in the 15th verse, the very first verse we read, was that the image of the invisible God is in essence Christ. And you know from the very beginning of our Bible, we uplift that, uh, that people, we, are created in the image of God, right? <clears throat> that we are created with, um, with a God-likeness. Therefore, we as human beings understand ourselves to be, in essence, children of God, are made with the essence of God in our creation. So from the very beginning of the Bible, we would stand opposed to what Gnosticism was about in saying that everything in essence that's physical is evil because we understand ourselves to be creations of God. And so Paul wanted to get across that we are created in the image of God and Jesus of Nazareth was in fact incarnate of God. In fact, in places in the Bible and even in this particular chapter, Jesus is seen as being one with the Father in creation. In John we have that, 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 that Christ was, was with God in the very beginning from, and part of that creating process. If Christ were only a man, then he is irrelevant to our thought of him as God, right? And if Christ were only God, then the incarnation would be irrelevant because we wouldn't think of him as fully human. So it's clear that we cannot have the Christian principles that we hold to without a Christ who's fully God and fully human. You know, next Sunday we begin the Christian season with the season of Advent, right? And Advent leads us up to Christmas. And Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation of God. We believe that God became a human being in the person of a little baby born in Nazareth, the person whose name is Jesus. So, fairest Lord Jesus is the manifestation of God and what we are meant to be through Him and what we can be through Him. Now, the second theme that I think we see in this particular passage this morning it is the theme that we are called to be a resurrection community. The image that Paul puts forth to the Colossians in the 18th verse says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Now we all know that one of, of Paul's favorite metaphors for the church is to describe the church as the body of Christ, right? 
We see that in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about how the body's made up of different parts and the eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you, or the hand to the, the foot. And I don't know exactly how it all goes, but you get the idea, right? That, that we can't discount other parts of the body, that all parts of the body work together to make the body whole. But Paul in this particular passage is underscoring the most important aspect of the metaphor. And that is that Christ is the head of the body. That, that Christ is the supreme one of the body that in essence makes the body whole. And there are two things. The church originated with Christ and the church is doing Christ's work. It's not our work. It's the head of the body's work. It's Christ's work that we as Christian people are about. And secondly, the church depends on Christ continually as the source of our energy and power. We understand that the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God within the church that moves us to the acts that we're involved in in the world in hopes of transforming the world. So when we say that the church is the resurrected body of Christ, it is the living body of Christ, what we are saying is that we understand our role as the church to be that presence of Christ in the world, empowered by Christ's Spirit that is within the church. You may recognize the name William Sloan Coffin, Jr. He was the pastor back um, several decades ago, actually, of the famous Riverside Church, an interdenominational church in New York City. Riverside was famous for having some of the great preachers of the church and William Sloan Coffin uh, being one of those, Harry Emerson Fosdick being another. But uh, this church was a prominent church in, in Christendom in the United States particularly because of its great preachers. Early in 1983, one of William Sloan Coffin's children drove his car off into the Boston Harbor and was drowned. And 13 days later, his father began a sermon to the Riverside Church and these words, and I quote, As almost all of you know, a week last Monday night, driving in a terrible storm, our son Alexander, who to his friends was the real day brightener and to his family fair is a star when only one star is shining in the sky my 24 year old son Alexander who enjoyed beating his old man in every game and in every race beat his father to the grave and then in this sermon Coffin went on to tell of the multitudes of friends and colleagues who'd sought to comfort him by hurling all kinds of pious platitudes his way and, and, and acts which Coffin took to be their best efforts to help him in his healing, but were also efforts that kept, him at a, kept them at a distance from actually entering into his pain. But then Coffin said to his congregation, his resurrected community, 
He said, but the members of Riverside Church chose another strategy. They cried with their pastor. They allowed their pastor to vent his anger, to voice his frustrations, to acknowledge the dread of his own death. In response to their empathy, he made the glorious affirmation toward the end of his sermon. And here's what he said. That is what hundreds of you understood so beautifully. You gave me what God gives all of us. Minimum protection and maximum support. You gave me what God gives all of us in this resurrection community. Minimum protection and maximum support. You know, God loves to be a part of our lives. But being Christian and being God does not mean that we escape those hard times, those difficult situations, the untimely death of children as Sloan Coffin experienced. You know, a terrible storm that, that leaves families without their beloved homes and and some families scrambling for what you know they'll do next. We we as Christians are, are are not sheltered from those kinds of storms. In essence, we have minimum protection, but we have maximum support from a living God who has created the church to be such that empathetic community that stands beside persons in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their heartache. You know, just this morning, just a few minutes ago, um, oftentimes when I'm going to uh, uh, take my robe off or put my robe on or whatever, um, I hear children singing in the choir room because the first hour of kids sing, you know, takes place about the time I'm making my trip. And so I always just poke my head around the corner. And, and when I did, I noticed there was um, a, a couple whom I recognized, even though I was looking at their back. And their son was singing um, in the little kids sing choir. And um, this couple I knew had lost their home. And, um, and, and she very nearly lost her life. She actually lost one of her fingers. And both of her hands this morning were wrapped up. And she was, you know, telling me about the, the, uh, the physical therapy that she was undergoing at this time. But she was so full of thanksgiving. And she said, I can't wait. The bell choir's playing today in the in the, um, the sanctuary, and she's a part of the bell choir. She said, I, I, I can't wait until I can get back in the bell choir and can be ringing my, those bells again. And you know, with te tears in her eyes, she talked about how, how the church had reached out to her and so many people had reached out to her, and she was so thankful. You know, they showed me a picture of their house. It was totally gone. And yet the joy in her heart was because of the resurrection community and that she, for the first time since the tornado, could be back in church today and watch her son sing. You know, the day of the tornado, they were in church. Kids sing, sang. And her son was sitting up there. And the two of them with two of their other sons were sitting just, I think, on the third row. But they were that close. And that very night was when their home, their home was destroyed. So I was reminded again this morning as a pastor that what it means to be the resurrection community of Christ 
means to be the very presence of the living God in the lives of others when they're going through the pain of life. As William Sloan Coffin said, minimum protection and maximum support. You know, the final thing I want to say this morning is that the church is to be the expression of reconciliation and the communication of the reconciliation power of Christ. In verses 19 and 20 that we just read, I'll read them again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. You know, the dream of God is to reconcile all things on earth and in heaven to himself through Jesus Christ. This is the cosmic mission. And I wonder if I have ever even begun to grasp the greatness of God in the way that God brings about reconciliation in our lives. You know, last Sunday I spoke um, on the little book Philemon, and I spoke about uh, forgiveness. Philemon is a story about um, a, a runaway slave named Armisimus. And Armisimus had run away and he'd connected with Paul. And so Paul is writing the letter of Philemon, just one chapter. And this letter is all about receive Philemon back, or, or Arnisimus back, Philemon. You're, you're a house church leader and you owned him as a slave. Receive him back, not as a slave, but as your brother. I'm sending him to you. And so the whole message last Sunday was about if we have a Philemon in the house, do, do we as the body of Christ have within us the ability to forgive others, therefore bringing about reconciliation in others' lives? I can't tell you. Even this morning I heard testimony from someone. But how many people have called and written this week about reconciliation moments? You know, asking forgiveness from somebody. Or forgiving someone who had wronged them. It's been a powerful week of reconciliation. And of course we know that that happens because we are the ones who've been forgiven by our living Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who know forgiveness, therefore, are called to be those reconcilers of the world. You know, yesterday I... um, I spoke at two charge conferences in East Texas. I was back in my homeland, right? And today we have a big charge conference in here. 21 churches coming together. And yesterday in New Boston, Texas, there were 20 or 30 churches that came together. And in Longview, Texas, that afternoon, the same thing. And so I drove about six hours yesterday from New Boston through the Piney Woods to uh, to Longview and then back and I had to swing by Chandler you know and see mom and dad and the, the bunch but um, I got home kind of late last night and, and I was thinking when I was back in kind of my neck of the woods um, about the fact that uh, this week 15 years ago my mentor Bill Henson had a brain stem stroke that took his life before the end of the year and um All of those memories were kind of coming back. And one of the memories, in keeping with what Paul was talking to the Colossians about, was a memory that I had about uh, 
Bill telling a story about his favorite bishop, a bishop named Bishop Arthur Moore. Bill said that Bishop Arthur Moore was so popular in the southeast that they didn't call him Bishop Moore, they called him King Arthur. And he said that King Arthur in his latter days had had a stroke and um, and his home was right across the street from Emory University, Candler School of Theology. And he said that Bishop Moore would sit on his front porch and he'd rock and students would come by and, you know, visit with him. And Bill said he went by Bishop Moore's front porch often and would just sit there and visit with Bishop Moore. But he said the thing I liked the most was listening to Bishop Moore. Bill was working on his Ph.D. He'd already been through seminary. But he said, I'd listen to these first-year students come and, and talk to Bishop Moore. And he said Bishop Moore was such a gracious gentleman. He'd always say, well, tell me about your classes. And, and the students would tell him, oh, yeah, I'm taking systematic theology or I'm taking this preaching class. And they'd go on and on and on. He'd say, tell me about your church. Where are you serving? And they'd tell about a little country church in South Georgia that they drove to on the weekends. And and all that was going on in the church. And Bill said Bishop Moore would always be just trying to get as much information. And he'd listen. And they knew he was very present with them. But Bill said, I, I, I really never heard a, a, a student come and address Bishop Moore that he didn't get the last word. And he said he'd always say toward the end of that conversation. You know you're going to learn a lot of good things over there at the seminary. And you're learning a lot of good things right now in your little church in the country. But before you get finished with seminary, there's one thing that you need to be very sure about. Really. You need to be very sure about Jesus. And he said those students would just say, Yeah, okay. All right. That's all he'd say. But I can tell you the next class they had of systematic theology, they went into it with the bishop's words ringing in their ears. You better be very sure about Jesus. And when they went into that preaching class and, and they were learning about, you know, how to craft a sermon, how to deliver, and all of these important things, the bishop's words would ring in their ears. You better be very sure about Jesus. That caused me to think about Bill Henson, and, and I was his associate for seven years, First Methodist in Houston. And I was in charge of evangelism there, so we were on the air, uh, a big television station. We were live, you know, so that's always a little scary. But after the service, uh, Bill would stand right in the front, right in the front of the altar. It's kind of a setup like this, actually. The pulpit was above the Lord's table and the altar rail in front. And, and, um, and, and after the service, you know, we'd receive new members. And, and, and then after the service was over, he'd just stand there and people would come to him. He didn't leave. And people have to shake his hand because they had to get out the door, right? He just, he just stood there and people came to him. And I, I remember uh, I stood beside him because every once in a while somebody would tell him something that he didn't want to forget. And he'd say, Brother Copeland, did you write that down? Oh, yeah, I wrote that down. And, um, and I remember one Sunday, 
there were three men and their spouses, and they were standing over to the side, and I knew them very well. In fact, I knew that they were all three a part of Bill's Bible study that he'd had for 15 or so years, and one of the men in that group had come to Christ through Bill's ministry, and the other two had been drawn closer to Christ through Bill's ministry. And they, they were close to him. They were confidants. They were part of his small circle of friends. And yet we had heard that they were leaving the church. And that was really hard for Bill. And here they were. So Bill was shaking hands, and I was watching them kind of out of the corner of my eye. I know Bill saw that they were there too. And when the last person came forward and he shook their hands, then, um, you know, here we were. And Bill turned and he walked over to them and he said, I'm glad y'all are here this morning. They were all kind of looking at their feet. And then one of them spoke up and said, yeah, Bill, said, we love you and we love this church. You've done so much for all of us and so many more. And this church means so very much to us. We, you know, we, we just, and then Bill said, well, then why are you leaving? They started looking at their shoes again and and the spokesperson spoke up and he said, Well, Bill, I just have to tell you, you're, you're one of the best preachers that I've ever heard in my life. But when you preach, it's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He said, You seem to be hung up on Jesus. And Bill smiled and he said, We're going to really miss you. They shook hands and hugged and they exited and there Bill and I were in front of the altar and he turned to me and he said, Brother Copeland, he said, if, if I could preach all my days and come to the end of my days and someone would stand at my grave and say, Lord, he went, hung up on Jesus, he said, it'd be enough for me. It'd be enough for me. Fifteen years ago, Bill, Bill had that stroke. And he died a few weeks later. And I was privileged to go to Huntsville, Alabama and do his funeral. And to stand at the head of his grave and say, Lord, he went hung up on Jesus and if you go to his grave today you'll see on his gravestone Lord he went hung up on Jesus friends the Moravians a persecuted group of people that connects to our Methodist heritage Led by one named John Huss during the Anabaptist Rebellion, what's called the bloody anti-Reformation purge of, 19, 20, of 1620. After that, the, their leader John Huss was, uh, was burned at the stake. They settled in a little town in Poland. And there in that little town they developed the Moravian community. John Wesley, when he was returning back from Georgia, back to England as a failed missionary and 
a storm arose on the sea and the ship was in danger of, 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 of being destroyed. And John Wesley could hear some singing, uh, joyful singing, and it was a bunch of Moravians who were on the ship. And John Wesley said, what do they have that I don't have? And so when they got safely back to England, he set out to meet those Moravians. And he spent a month with those Moravians. And it was shortly after that, a Moravian named Peter Bowler invited him to a house where they were studying the book of Romans. And John Wesley found what he saw in them. He found a joy in Jesus and what God's grace was all about for him. And it transformed his life. And it led to the creation of the Wesleyan movement that not only created the United Methodist Church, but the Nazarenes and the Church of God and the Salvation Army and on and on. I could go. Some 85 different denominations. But one of the theme songs that they sang was Fairest Lord Jesus. Ruler of all nature. O thou of God and Son of man, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of man. Glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore are thine. Friends, I pray that we can go into this Thanksgiving week springboarding off of this Sunday that we call Christ the King Sunday, being very sure about Jesus who calls us to be his resurrected body in the world, bringing about reconciliation and transformation to the world, not of our own power, but the spirit of the living God who lives in me and you and the body of Christ, the church. Friends, be very sure about Jesus. Amen.